So let's go to God in prayer. God, we thank you so much for your kindness, your desire to for our good and best life. We thank you, God, that we live in such a safe environment where our homes are sound and this place. We are dry and comfortable, and we sit around table with friends. And God, even in our gratitude for the watering of the earth, for the replenishing of the snow in the mountains, for all the good that comes, we also hold intention, oh God, that part of us that that our hearts break for those whose homes are flooded, whose livelihoods are destroyed, who are unsheltered and have no place to come in out of the rain. Thank you, God, that we can never let go of that piece of life as well so that we might live in gratitude and also live in a sense of responsibility, a sense of um, the depth of the love that you have for every single person beyond ourselves. We thank you that for this church and the way that this church responds to the community, for the all the the people who pool their resources, oh God, to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and set the captives free. Thank you for your ancient faith that comes down and is brand new to us every day. And for we pray that it will be your spirit of wisdom that guides us through the scriptures today. And we pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen. All right. So let's look at not a very long reading. Remember that time I had to read two chapters? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I wanted you to read them ahead of time. But today, although it's just a few verses, we have one of the longest uh, uh, commandments that are in chapter 20. We, this is, if you look at the, cha- the commandments that follow in 13, 14, 15, and 16, they're just one line. And so even though these are only a few verses, it's one of the longest, and it includes instruction. So this is from 28 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. This is the word of the Lord. So strictly speaking, Shabbat, or Sabbath, begins on Friday evening at sundown. And from that time on, it's forbidden to perform any uh, most certain activities, including lighting the Shabbat candles. So the lighting of the candles, okay, my microphone completely goes out, just 
raise your hand because I can't tell, but I could tell that it's dimming. So, um, so the lighting of the candles traditionally starts 18 minutes before sunset. Now, why 18 minutes? Well, in the Talmudic times, the times when they're creating the Talmud and they're interpreting why all of these rituals came to be, there are two mindsets. One is that not only does bringing the Shabbat in a little bit earlier, not only does it um, ensure that we not accidentally miss the start time, so to speak, and per perform forbidden work on Shabbat, which is absolutely, the, you know, just like the worst that you can do. Not only do we do that, but it also demonstrates an affection for Shabbat. So we go out to the Shabbat even before she arrives. And Shabbat is spoken of in a feminine term. Much, in the old, much of these kind of things are spoken to as feminine. Yeah, you can go ahead. Just in case. Thanks, Amanda. Does everybody know Amanda? Yeah. She's great. She's wonderful. Um, so, so not only do we go out to ensure that we don't do anything, but it's also we have this great affection for um, Shabbat. And it's uh, feminized. The, the term Shabbat is, is spoken of as though it's a female, as is wisdom. In at which I pointed out to the men this morning, in in the in the book of Proverbs, women it's a, a female, it's the woman, and she uh, is wisdom in the book of uh, Proverbs. So we go out even to receive the Shabbat even before she arrives, and then there's a little time of Shabbat where they um, end a little bit early before the next sunset on Saturday evening so that we can accompany her out. In Talmudic times, here's how it happened. Here's how they came up with 18 minutes. So in Talmudic times, the custom was to blow six shofar blasts. You remember the ram's horn, right? Three blasts, and after the third blast, it was time to light the Shabbat candles. But, they would wait the time it took to roast a small fish before blowing the next three blasts. Why is that? Well, it may have been that theoretically it was the last preparation before Shabbat, and they would then eat the fish. But, um, and then they would blow the final three blasts, indicating the onset of Shabbat, and all work after that, all of the, uh, the type of work that uh, was articulated has to be ended by then. So no more roasted fish. But so 18 minutes they de deduced was the time it took to roast a small fish. And then later on they said, and the time it takes to walk three quarters of a mile. With no explanation of why three quarters of a mile has anything to do with anything. But anyway, uh, so 18 minutes before the uh, sundown is when Shabbat actually begins. And you better hope that you have an accurate meteorologist, an accurate timetable on, uh, that you're alluding to. So when it was time to light the candle of Shabbat, they would say this prayer. 
Blessed are you, eternal our God, sovereign of time and space. You hallow us with your laws and command us to kindle the lights of Sabbath. And then Sabbath began. So conventionally, what we call the Ten Commandments in the Hebrew text are called the Ten Words. Now, words are very, it's a very important word that we use as word because it's the ten words. Do you remember? It was the word that brought all of creation into being, the word of God. God spoke and creation. God said this and everything came into being. And then do you remember later on in the New Testament, it talks about in, in John, it says, and the word was God and the word was with us. And the word was here for all times. So the word is a very important terminology in the text. So these are the 10 words that we come to know. So the 10 words establish, and here's the important part. Here's, here's what begins to put a frame around these 10 words. The 10 words establish the conditions necessary for a free, loving, and just community of God's people to develop and to flourish. The three adjectives, those are very important. They're free, loving, and just are basic elements of a community that thrives together. And if you really give that some thought, maybe in your small groups you can talk about why are those three things, maybe I should have written that as a question. Dang it, now I think of it. But... Uh, those three adjectives are so vital for community. So perhaps you can talk about that in your small group. If we're going to live in community, however, the, the uh, rabbinical wisdom says, if you're going to live in community, dealing with the God we cannot see takes priority over dealing with the people that we can see. Now, what does that exactly does that mean? It means that our relationship with God forms the plumb alignment in our relationship with others. So do you, have you ever done like a, the plumb line, you know, where you take the line and you flick it and it makes a little chalk or maybe you have laser now, but it's, it's, it's that line that centers everything and that create, make sure it's level and make sure that everything is, is in keeping with it. So God is the, the vertical plumb line. And the, the feeling is that our relationship with God forms a plumb line in order for us to have a balanced vertical plumb with others. So we have to, if we don't have, if we aren't in a right relationship with God, it's, it's impossible to be in a right relationship with each other. They, it, we need to have that right relationship. When the vertical line is plumb, when we're in a right relationship with God, the horizontal lines have a standard by which they're kept level. So, and, and that's how community is built. So the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, are the standard by which we have this plumb relationship with God in order to have a plumb relationship with each other. So now we go back and we look at the first four commandments. And I know you've already talked about three of them, but I just want to quickly say this about them in case it wasn't covered. But the first four commandments are really known as cultic. 
And by cultic, it means specific to a group. That's what cultic means. So the, the first four commandments are cultic and religious in focus and explore Israel's relationship with the Lord. That's the first four commandments. After the fourth commandment, after this one today, what will happen is you'll see a transition from this cultic relationship with God by this certain group of people to a more universal relationship between people with each other. It's focused on then the relationship that we have each other. But the plumb line has been set. The plumb alignment has been set with the first four commandments. So the issue of the Sabbath is a really complex issue. And and not only in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy and then Numbers and in the Old Testament, but it's also very complex in Christian theology and practice. And I know that there are many questions about do we still practice the Sabbath? Is Sunday the Sabbath? And all of these questions. And I hope that maybe there'll be some enlightenment as we go along on those particular questions. So it's probable that the Sabbath itself, the idea of setting aside a time of ritualized observance, is a very ancient institution and probably existed in some form or another even before these writings, even before they were handed down in the Decalogue. There was some form of this, um, this rhythm that God had created of observance. This is reflected kind of in the various uh, rationales given in chapters 20 and chapter 31 and Deuteronomy 5. And you'll hear me reference Deuteronomy 5 a little bit because that's when we, re we go through and reiterate and kind of flesh out these 10 commandments here in, in uh, chapter 20. So there were always this expansion of these uh, uh, the 10. And you can see that even as the... When Moses was on Mount Sinai, we always think of only Ten Commandments coming down from Mount Sinai. But actually, the in the in the understanding of the from the Jewish perspective, six hundred and thirteen were brought down, too heavy for Moses to carry, because Moses was Fred Flintstone, right? I mean, that's how the that's that's the image we have of these big stone tablets brought down. But actually, so all of so what it, what it meant was that the rules of becoming a people who were just and loving and, and caring were being set up so that these people could continue to be the people of God who would carry out and carry through with all the work that needed to be doing to fulfill the covenant that God had made from the very beginning. So there, be, there seemed to be an expansion and a development, even in post-biblical times, even into the modern era. And in your uh, um, handout, I gave you something that talked about the blue laws. And I wondered, how many of you are familiar with the blue laws? A lot of you. How many of you never even heard of a blue law? Okay, well, a blue law, and thank you, you weren't born here, right? Okay, right. Well, a, a blue law was an attempt in the late 1700s, really, to legislate Sabbath by the, by the government, by being a law about what we could and could not do on the Sabbath, but not really the Sabbath on the Christian Sunday. So the blue laws uh, were enacted all over, all over the country, but slowly they were... Um, 
you know, they were pulled back from. But I, in the handout I gave you, you could see the states that still enact uh, those blue laws. And by the way, they were called the blue laws. I wonder if you know why. Well, they were called the blue laws because they were written by this guy who was, you know, he was kind of proud of his calligraphy and fanciness. So he wrote it on blue paper. So that's why it's called the blue laws. Isn't that crazy? Um, but he, so these laws were an attempt to legislate Sabbath. And we all know how successful it is to legislate people's faith you know, to make it a law. But still today, so it was transferred. So the blue laws over time, you can see, lost the heart, which was to observe the Sabbath. And it just became more about a morality police. And today, almost to the letter, all the blue laws really have to do with is alcohol. And so I, you know, I spent seven years in South Carolina. And growing up in California, I was just... I mean, I'm not a drinker. I'm a teetotaler for many reasons, but a lot of my friends drink. And when I was back in South Carolina, I know that there was no sale of any alcohol on Sundays, you know, as though they couldn't go on Saturday and stock up. But, you know, but this was their attempt to legislate, and some of those rules are still in keeping. But like many things, they lost kind of the heart of what it was. So these verses on the Sabbath, like I said, make up kind of one of the longest commandments and the one that actually holds instruction in it. So what we have here is that time itself. And we know, we know that time is not a real thing, but it's a way for us that we have constructed as humans to mark a movement we, we mark it, we use time to mark movement, not only in our lives, but in our seasons, in, our, in the years, and, and all of this, but it's still a perception. But in this particular verses, Sabbath, time is structured and made holy by this fourth commandment, by God's command that the seventh or Sabbath day be set aside as holy. So to keep the Sabbath day holy is to keep it separate from the other six days as a sanctuary time. This was a time of safekeeping for the soul, so to speak. And it was a sanctuary time. People are not to live according to this understanding of the Sabbath. People are not to live as if all your time belongs to you. And to do with as you please. So in a way, when you look at it, it's the way we look at our money as well. It's our money is the money we have. But we also have a belief system that God has blessed us with whatever, whatever gifts, whatever comforts, whatever we have. God has gifted us with that in order to share and be responsible for others. So in the same way, we... Time does not belong to us. Time belongs to God. So the God of all time retains the right to determine how one day shall or shall not be used. So this weekly separation is emphasized by kind of the inclusion in verses 8 and then 11 is to be publicly demonstrated by a time of rest 
for all engaged in work. And when I say all, I am not being, uh, that's not hyperbole, because look at what it includes. The commandment to sanctify the Sabbath affects the entire household of Israel. Animals, slaves, women, children, the resident alien, those who aren't even among them, are not allowed to be put to work. This makes, because of this, because it involves and is named for the entire household, including the creature world, including animals, this makes this particular commandment inclusive of humanitarian and justice concerns. This makes it stand out, and I'll explain why in just a moment. But the Sabbath is fundamentally becomes an egalitarian commandment, institution, because think of this, as we mentioned before, the Sabbath rest is for all. It's for rich and poor, master and servant, human beings and animals. It's for all working, all things. The Sabbath brings this to the regular attention of the community. The regular attention of the community that you not work your animals, that you not work your slaves, that you not work the alien, alien in your midst, that you not work yourself. Thereby, there is one moment in creation that is recaptured. Isn't that beautiful? Oh my goodness. One moment in creation that is recaptured when the world's creatures all were at peace with one another. And it calls for, and it indeed anticipates, a new world order when once again it'll be this way and everything will be good, when all will be in harmony and we won't be using or abusing each other, the earth or the, the other creatures that belong to the earth. So this humanitarian concern of the Sabbath here, uh, as I told you before, is a bridge to the commandments concerned with the interpersonal relationships, uh, which are reflected in the next set of commandments. So there's one understanding of the reason for Sabbath observance is that it arises from the structure of creation itself. I'm going to ask you to go way back and remember when we were talking about Genesis and that number 10. Do you remember how important that number 10 is? God gives 10, speaks 10 words to call creation into being. And then, and in later, God speaks 10 words to bring 10 plagues and undoes creation. And then God bring, and then the scriptures talk about 10 words that bring creation back into uh, some kind of order. And here we have these 10 words that God speaks again. So it's thought that the whole uh, idea of the Decalogue, the 10 words, is based on the idea around creation. But in, um, and, and the, reason, uh, the reason that that's so important to understand is because the divine rest in creation the, the way you might picture it is God comes in from a hard six days of work, right? You know, ready to relax. It's been hard. All the planets, the galaxies, oh my gosh. It's just been, you know, very difficult. So God comes in. The work is finished. The work of creation is finished. 
So God comes in, hangs up God's hat, goes in, has a Diet Coke, you know, whatever, and rests. And then we have this image that, so that day is in addition to the, the creation story. But the divine rest is not a picturesque way of speaking of the end of God's creation. This is the, this is the switch. The divine rest finished creation. So the divine rest is part of creation. It becomes, God's resting is a divine act that builds into the very created order of things as a working, resting rhythm. So it's not an add-on, it's part of. So only when that rhythm is honored in, the, in this Talmudic thinking, it's only when that rhythm is honored by all is the creation what God intended it to be. So on Sabbath, when we keep the Sabbath, according to the, uh, the Talmud, when we keep the Sabbath, that is a way, that is a day in which we see how the order of God is in place and what the world is meant to be um, in, in its uh, divine order. Even more, Sabbath keeping is an act of creation keeping. So to keep the Sabbath is to participate in God's intention for the rhythm of creation. I'm going to say that again because this is really vital. To keep the Sabbath in the Jewish mindset is to participate in God's intention for the rhythm of creation. Not keeping the Sabbath is a violation of the created order. It returns one aspect of the order, which is keeping of the Sabbath. It returns that into chaos. What the creatures do with the Sabbath has cosmic effects. It doesn't just mean you broke a rule. What you did was you interrupted the creation and the flow of the cosmic order. So it's these lines of thinking that help explain the death penalty which Israel attached to Sabbath keeping in chapter 31, 12 through 17. And it was interesting this morning when I said this, did they ever argue with me? No, no, that can't be true. It can't happen. And I don't see Jews out killing people today. No, you don't see that today. Maybe they didn't want to get killed. Maybe they were keeping the Sabbath. You know, but there's so much resistance to this. Why would there be such a penalty over a day? It's not a day. Do you, are you starting to get that feel? It's not a day. It's about something more than a day. So, in Deut- but so that's that's a with a mindset towards it's about the whole creation experience. But in Deuteronomy five, Sabbath rest is rooted in Israel's salvation from Egyptian slavery and not in creation. So the first part of the command calls for ceasing labor one day in seven, which is in keeping with uh, the uh, Hebrew people as they were leaving Egypt. And the other reference in Exodus to the Sabbath is in chapter 16, when it talks about gathering manna, how, and, and, and how long could you gather manna? One day, right? And then you rested. So there was this Sabbath 
this experience of it all being about the way God set up this rhythm of work and rest. So in the context of the ancient world, the Sabbath day was unique to Israel. And by the way, there are these different thoughts of that it's either creation, um, talking about uh, Israel's salvation from Egypt. Personally, and I'm just going to say this, this Jan Cook's world, I really don't think they're at odds with each other. I think they are very compatible. <clears throat> and I do think that the the uh, Exodus story of uh, freedom of slavery and all of that follows the creation story. So I think that it's very easy for me to imagine that they are that this Decalogue is patterning itself after both of those experiences. In the context of the ancient world, the Sabbath was unique to Israel, meaning there were no other peoples who were experiencing six days of work and one day of rest. So on the one hand, this was an incomparable gift to the people of Israel, an incomparable gift. Now listen, I know you're going to understand this, but can you imagine a guilt-free day of rest? You know, when I had small children, I just imagined just just breaking an ankle and, and just being in the hospital for a day. I mean, isn't that crazy? that I could actually experience some rest guilt-free because there was no way. I, I'm sorry, I can't do anything about it, you know? So this day where it was commanded, where it was meant to, where we had to do it, where you had to make all these preparations to get ready for it, and, and then you set aside and you could do it guilt-free. You could rest from your labors guilt-free. So on the one hand, it was an incomparable gift to the people of Israel, and it, and it continued to be a model for um, uh, humanitarian and justice issues. No other ancient people had the privilege of resting one day in seven. In fact, I was just, uh, you know, as I was doing some research, I was curious about what the hours per week it used to be in the United States, the work week. And I went back, I just went back as far as like um, 1820 or, or something like 1819 or something like that. The average work week in 18 whatever was 80 hours, 80 hours of work. And that didn't include what you were doing, you know, to survive at home. And it wasn't until a Ford came along and established the uh, weekend when uh, with his factories and stuff because he wanted to sell people more recreation vehicles. So he's a smart guy. But it wasn't until then that they cut back the work week. But until then, people were working themselves to death. So um, on the other hand, what it meant was that it required an extraordinary trust that God would provide, right? Six days of work had to be enough to plant crops, to gather the harvest, to carry water, to spin cloth, to draw sustenance from, from creation. All of that planning, it had to be uh, enough. And then you rested on the seventh day and you did nothing. So, I mean, think about that. So while, and also while Israel rested one day every week and they they were were taken out of, their community and the culture of whatever, they, wherever they were. What were the other people doing? 
Well, they were selling their goods and selling their wares, and they were, uh, um, as the historians say, in continuing to forge swords and feather arrows and, and train soldiers. They were getting a leg up on the market. And so Israel had to trust God, and this is what it's all about. It's always all about trust. It really is. Can I get by with what God provides? Can, can, is that possible? Oh, but God doesn't understand our situation because we're so exceptional. But we aren't, and God does understand, and God still asks us to trust. So Israel had to trust God not to let a day of rest lead to economic and military uh, catastrophe. It's interesting to gain a little bit more understanding for the set apartness of the Sabbath by looking ahead to chapter 31. And I won't spend any time on it because you're going to get there. But this was what surrounded the experience of the, of the people when Moses was gone for a long time. So they, they created an idol, the golden calf. Could they have done anything worse? I'm not sure. But anyway, when Moses came down uh, from the mountain, there were two edicts that, that um, Moses issued, coming down, going back, and coming back again. And that was when he saw the people dancing and having a free-for-all and all of that, everything, he said, remember Shabbat, remember Sabbath. And that Sabbath-keeping was meant to bring the people back into a unity of focusing their attention on the one true God. Immediately before the incident and immediately after, Moses gives the Israelite that command. In both cases, the same command, namely Shabbat, the Sabbath. So why would this be God's remedy for the people's disobedience and idolatry? Why would Sabbath be that? Well, the, a lot of rabbis say that it may be that keeping the Sabbath is the antidote to the golden calf because it is a day when the Jews had to stop thinking about the price of things and they had to start thinking and focus on the value of things. And think about that. I, uh, it was very interesting to me as I talk with retired people, of which I claim to be one of them. Um, but in retired people, you know, later in life, we never talk about, oh, I should have worked longer hours. I should have done this. But we begin to value, don't we? other things because time begins, we begin to change our attitude about time. On the Sabbath, they could not buy or sell anything. They could not work or pay others to work for them. It was the day dedicated to the celebration of the things that have value, but no price. So, and I, and I want you to know, I, I emphasize this with the men this morning. So, for example, on the, um, uh, the Sabbath, a tradition would be that husbands would sing a song of praise to their wives. Isn't that nice? One man said, and then they laugh. <laughs> and parents would bless their children. They would take time to have a meal with family and friends. Even today in the synagogue, the Jews renew their sense of community. People share their joys in the, on the Sabbath. A new child, a bar mitzvah, a bat mitzvah, an engagement, a forthcoming wedding, ka, uh, sitting with Kaddish, you know, the, the prayer of grief. When you're grieving, in 
in the Sabbath experience, you celebrate and experience all of those things together. Jews listen to the Torah being read together as a reminder of the story of which they are all a part of. They pray together, thanking God for their blessings. And all of these things might sound familiar. They may sound like things that we do on Sunday. And that's because we are setting aside a time and a day in which we observe the Lord, which we have an observation of how God works in our lives. This remembering is a way of getting into a right relationship with God. In the same way the Israelites needed to be remembered after they fractured that relationship of faith with the incident of the golden calf. So remembering is more than just a mental act. Remembering is an active observation. That means you do something with that remembering. You don't just like, hmm, you know, I remember. No, you, how do you remember? And one gentleman this morning said, how do we make our experience of Sabbath more holy? You know, well, that's a very good question. And I hope you answer that. There is no mention of it as a time for worship in the scriptures. But the fact that it's a Sabbath day for, to the Lord leaves room for worship as a way of developing that commitment. So Shabbat or Sabbath has meant many things over the course of time. And during the biblical era, it was a sustained protest against slavery. For one day in seven, even a slave was free. And for one day in seven, they remembered that the natural order of God's creation, that there were no slaves. So it was a constant reminder to them that on this day in which things are as they should be, the slave was free. In later ages, it was a defense, a defense against poverty and oppression. It was a moment in which a much, much afflicted people found serenity and breathed the more spacious air. You know, maybe out there they were being... Uh, being aligned and, and, and maligned, and maybe they were, it was a terrible situation, but inside their home, inside that place of Sabbath, when everything was set apart, they were experiencing this great and deep joy. A topic of great debate among Christians is, I think it's a debate mired in legalism, and that debate is, do we keep the Sabbath? And if if not, why not? And how, do, what, how does Sunday come to be and all of that? Well, some Christian groups believe in the letter of the law and believe in the literal uh, Old Testament as well as New Testament. I grew, up, uh, I grew up with my grandmother being a Seventh-day Adventist. How many of you know a Seventh-day Adventist or are familiar with that? Well, as you know, Seventh-day Adventists take those commandments literally and uh, and uh, as well as other mandates in the uh, Hebrew text. They worship on Saturday. We used to, once in a while, I would go to church with my grandmother and it was Saturday school. I didn't go very often. Um, so, and they're also vegetarians. So uh, they live a kosher life along with being a vegetarian. So they take it very literal. And so that's the legalist uh, uh, arm. And then we have 
other Christian groups that believe that since Christ came, and we are no longer under the rule of the law, but worship the one who fulfilled the law, then we no longer need to adhere to the fourth commandment. So per, my feeling is that maybe we're liberated from the legalistic band of when and how, but the spirit of this commandment remains intact. Because Sabbath is not about a day. Sabbath is about an attitude of, of, of holy attitude set apart to concentrate and to observe our relationship with God. That's what Sabbath is about, a holy relationship with time, if you will. That's what Sabbath is for me. In, we face the same issue of trust in God's provision today. If we heed God's commandment to observe God's own cycle of work and rest, will we be able to compete in the modern economy? Will our children be able to compete in sports and in gymnastics and everything that they do? And, and how can we find loopholes? And how can we soften all this? And you know, how can we make this different? I don't know. I mean, does it take seven days of work to hold a job or two or three jobs? To clean the house, prepare the meals, mow the lawn, wash the car, pay the bills, finish the schoolwork. There's a million things we have to do and shop for clothes. Or... Can we trust God to provide for us, even if we take a day off during the course of every week, to rest, to step back, to pay attention to the order of things, which includes that letting go of work? Can we take time to worship God, to pray, and to gather with others for encouragement? And if we do, will it make us less productive overall? Is it about a day of the week, or is it about setting apart a portion of our time as God's time? Is it about a brand new relationship with time? And looking at time as not just belonging to us, but, but time being something that God has provided for us. A time for Sabbath because God has deemed it wise as a means to renew your heart and mind and welcome rest from the demands and pressures and the distractions. The fourth commandment doesn't explain how God will make it all work. It doesn't. It simply tells us to rest one day every seven and to make it holy. In closing, I'd like to close with the evening prayer of the Sabbath, which is the prayer that they conclude with on that Saturday evening. Let's go to God in prayer. In this moment of silent communion with you, O Lord, a still small voice speaks in the depth of my spirit. It speaks to me of the things I must do to attain holy kinship with you and to grow in the likeness of you. I must do my allotted task with unflagging faithfulness, even though the eye of no taskmaster is on me. I must be gentle in the face of ingratitude or when slander distorts my noblest motives. I must come to the end of each day with a feeling that I have used its gifts gratefully and faced its trials bravely. Adonai, Help me to be ever more like you, holy for you, 
for you are holy. Loving, for you are love. Speak to me then, Lord, as I seek you again and again and again in the stillness of meditation, until your bidding shall at last become for me a hollow discipline, a familiar way of life. Amen. Happy Sabbath.